TC. Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio on this live broadcast from Studio 14. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Sudan's paramilitary leader, Mohammed Hamdan Dagolo, has said he's open to an immediate, to rather immediate and unconditional ceasefire talks with the army. Initially, their invitation had gone out to both Burhan and Hemeti. But only Hemeti responded. Now, that could be for two reasons. One, it could be that Burhan and the people behind him, like they had done before, uh, refused to agree to a meeting. They have been very reluctant to agree to a meeting. Also on the show, Ethiopia signs an agreement with Somaliland. After the meeting, a statement was issued. Uh, the statement declares that the null and void says it's against the international customary laws and violates the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Somalia. We will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. As reported by Reuters, Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces expressed their willingness to engage in immediate and unconditional ceasefire negotiations with the Sudanese army. The statement was signed in Addis Ababa with Taqaddum, a civilian coalition. RSF chief Mohammed Hamdan Dagolo noted that the same declaration has been extended as an invitation to the army. He emphasized the potential for this document to form the groundwork for peace negotiations aiming to resolve the ongoing nine-month conflict. The civilian coalition led by former Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has been actively exploring solutions to the country's conflict. The coalition has invited Sudan's army chief Abdul Fattah al-Burhan for a similar meeting. Meanwhile, Dagalo, also known as Himati, is currently on a regional tour marking his first public appearance outside the country since the conflict erupted in April. This tour precedes the highly anticipated face-to-face meeting with Burhan. To gain insight into these unfolding developments, I spoke with Khulud Khair, the director of Confluence Advisory, a Khartoum-based think tank. I thought it was a, a very big gamble by the civilians. Initially, their invitation had gone out to both Burhan and Hemeti, but only Hemeti responded. Now, that could be for two reasons. One, it could be that Burhan and the people behind him like they had done before, uh, refused to uh, agree to a meeting. They have been very reluctant to agree to a meeting. They pushed back against the EGAD planned meeting before Christmas. So this is not outside of, of their sort of approach to mediation so far. The second reason could be that the invitation to Burhan and the way that it was phrased could have potentially pushed him to not agree to attend. We know, for example, that uh, Hemeti and the RSF have been insisting that Burhan make himself present as the head of the Sudan Sudanese Armed Forces, not as the head of the Transitional Sovereignty Council. And so if the initial invitation went out to address to Burhan as the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces and not the head of the Transitional Sovereignty Council as well, that may have stopped him from agreeing to come. But without seeing those letters, we don't know 
quite the reason um, Burhan refused to attend. I think the surprising thing for a lot of people is that the meeting still went ahead with the other two parties, namely Hamdok and Hemeti. And with so many rumors running around of uh, an alliance between some civilian actors and the RSF, I think the optics of this could have been better managed um, because a lot of people um, still have those misgivings. Taqaddum, this civilian coalition led by Hamdok is being presented as the most extensive civilian bloc since the Forces uh, for Freedom and Change, uh, which of course played a crucial role in in the protests leading to the removal of President Omar Bashir. Do you see hope in this coalition? What outcomes can potentially you know, be achieved by engaging with the warring parties? I think it's important to have a civilian, uh, broad civilian front. The question is whether Taqaddum is that broad civilian front right now. And there have certainly been a lot of criticisms of Taqaddum um, for many civil society actors that it's just not inclusive enough. I mean, certainly, if you look at the delegation of people who went to um, meet with Hemeti, there were very, very few women. And it was a, pretty much the same old names indicating that, you know, newer voices, younger voices uh, potentially are not being heard even inside of Taqaddum. And so it's these kinds of concerns that I think will allay people's um, readiness to join Taqaddum. That said, there has to be a civilian front that engages with the belligerents. The question is, what is the manner of that engagement? They need to be seen as following the interests of the people and not their own political interests, which historically has not been the case for many Sudanese elites. That is a challenge for them right now, to communicate what they're doing, to act transparently, and to ensure that they communicate that they are serving the broader interests of the Sudanese public and not their own narrow political interests. Yes, and especially after the total failure of the Jeddah uh, negotiations uh, led by the Americans and the Saudis to stop the war or achieve anything tangible, really. And now there's more pressure on Sudanese actors, regional actors, to present something better and to be more transparent, like you just mentioned. International mediations work on a very different logic to more local mediations. International mediations, whether they're Jeddah, IGAD, AU or the Cairo Initiative are much more to do with the countries and the institutions that lead the mediation rather than Sudan and what's going on internally. For example, we haven't seen any of these mediations really pick up on the humanitarian issues or the protection of civilians issues. We haven't seen, for example, the Jeddah talks talk about um, violence in Darfur as it was happening while the negotiations were ongoing, um, focusing rather um, on a national picture, which in many ways obfuscates what people are going through um, on a more domestic level. And so, you know, these more internationalized mediations have had a very difficult time in figuring out how to respond to um, events in Sudan because their lens is not focused on Sudan, but rather on the internal politics and geostrategic interests of the countries that lead the mediations. So that's why there is a gap, really, for more domestic uh, initiatives to take the lead. That's Khulud Khair, the director of the Confluence Advisory, a Khartoum-based think tank. She spoke with me earlier today from London.
landlocked Ethiopia took the first steps toward gaining access to the sea, signing an agreement yesterday in the capital Addis Ababa with the breakaway Somali region of Somaliland to access its coastline. Somaliland President Muse Bihi Abdi said the agreement included a statement that Ethiopia would recognize Somaliland as an independent country in the near future. Somaliland seceded from Somalia more than 30 years ago, but it is not recognized by the African Union or the United Nations as an independent state. Somalia is still considered Somaliland part of its territory. And in talking with VOA Somali service reporter Harum Maruf, he says reactions by officials from Somalia were swift. Today, on Tuesday, uh, the Somali government responded to the deal and the memorandum of understanding signed by Ethiopia and Somaliland. Uh, The Somali cabinet held a meeting, an an emergency meeting in Mogadishu. Uh, After the meeting, a statement was issued. Uh, The statement declares that deal null and void, says it's against international customary laws and violates the sovereignty and the territorial integrity uh, of Somalia. Uh, Somalia, in protest of that deal, summoned its ambassador to Addis Ababa for consultations and warned Ethiopia against what it called uh, violating the territorial integrity and the political independence of Somalia. After the cabinet statement, the president of Somalia spoke to the two houses of parliament and in his speech, he cited the Ethiopian military intervention in 2006. Uh, That's when Al-Shabaab strongly emerged from the Islamic courts. And at that time, the Ethiopian intervention was a rallying cry for some Somalis who supported Al-Shabaab. And the president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, today uh, cited that and he said the decision by Abiy Ahmed to sign this deal is creating another opportunity for Al-Shabaab to recruit more fighters. And Harun, uh, you are correct in saying like, you know, Somaliland ceded from Somalia more than 30 years ago, but it is not recognized by the African Union or the United Nations as an independent state. The argument uh, from Somaliland perspective is that uh, Somaliland has been working very hard for many years to get international recognition. Somaliland has, has been having closer cooperation, closer relations uh, with Ethiopia, even though Ethiopia uh, never Uh, extended the recognition to Somaliland, but nonetheless, the two sides had uh, closer relations. Uh, Somaliland is citing that. It's saying, and they believe that uh, recognition from Ethiopia, if it happens, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, So the Somaliland president said it will happen once the agreement is officially signed. On the other side, Ethiopia has this closer relations with the federal government of Somalia. Ethiopia currently has thousands of troops in Somalia, some of them serving as part of the African Union mission in Somalia, and some of them stationed in regions in Somalia based on bilateral agreement with the federal government of Somalia. So how is Ethiopia going to play this uh, role, having closer relations with Somalia and with Somaliland, and at the same time keep both of them happy? That's going to be very difficult. That is what is so perplexing. How can you have your own soldiers in Somalia and then signing almost a military pact to lease a port with the regional head of state? 
president of Somalia today said there's only one option for Somalia and Ethiopia. He said we have not chosen to be neighbors, but all option we have is to live side by side in peace. Uh, it will be interesting to see how the two leaders of the two countries really maneuver that around and keep peace and having good relations. That was VOA Somali service reporter Harun Maruf. He spoke with my colleague Yahya Suhib. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, opposition candidates continued to reject the results of the country's presidential election. The National Election Commission on Sunday declared incumbent President Felix Chizukede the winner of last month's vote. The Election Commission said Chizukede won 73% of the vote. The runner-up, businessman and former provincial government Mweze Katumbe, had about 18% of the vote. There were 18 other opposition candidates, most of whom won only about 1% or less of the vote. Nine opposition candidates, including Kayumbi, signed a declaration Sunday rejecting the election and calling for a rerun despite the complaints the country nearly the size of Western Europe has been calm. Reporter Zanim Zeti Zaidi spoke with people in Goma, the largest city in the country's eastern region, to hear what they think to hear what they think should be the top priority of President Chizikedi's second term. Hamper Mosukeku is most concerned about ending the violence in the eastern region, where more than a hundred armed rebel groups operate. He says, first, it is urgent that the president and his entire government invest in peace in the eastern DRC. He said the government's first priority should be to establish peace and state authority throughout the national territory. Masomeko also says the president needs to address the economic situation and inflation and to work much harder on macroeconomic stability. George Bihamba says he wants to see peace and security first. Uh, my expectations which are very urgent, first of all, is the security. Security in the east part of the DRC. You know, it has been a long time our land is attacked by enemies, M23. So now the first urgent mission that the president should do is to first of all to eradicate, to put an end to this war that has mourned a lot of families. Josu Intikala suggests different priorities for the new government, education and infrastructure for the vast country. He says the president should focus on the continuation of free primary education, which has the effective, especially in terms of school infrastructure, including buildings. And Intikala says the second expectation is that we have roads that are completely impassable and that better roads facilitate interprovincial communication. James Bashonga also wants to focus on the economy, especially employment. I think what the, the new government should use as the resolution for 2024 or of the second mandate is to fight against unemployment of youth. 
In DRC, you can see that the majority of young people, they are not employed. And this joblessness in a country determines and it triggers a lot of problems. You can see young people, they don't have any occupation. They're spending all the day home, just drinking, smoking and going into bad things. The opposition alleges that chaos at many polling stations, which caused the election commission to extend voting another day, favored Shikezi and manage and, and damage rather the integrity of the vote. The DRC Constitutional Court is expected to confirm the provincial results on January 10. You're listening to South Sudan Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, we look at Chad's new, newly appointed prime minister. Stay tuned. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... Is wealth an important factor when making marriage decisions? Uh, wealth is not an important factor when making marriage decisions because most... Wealth is best acquired when you're together as a couple. Of course. I think that any decision that involves another person, it's only fair to include wealth as a as an important thing. Like, I can live on almost no money, but I couldn't expect my wife or my children to. Uh, not wealth, but security, financial security. Because if you're planning to have kids, then... You need to provide for them. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. President Emerson Menengagwa has predicted Zimbabwe's morbidant economy will turn around this year following the recent discovery of oil and gas near the country's border with Mozambique and Zambia, an improvement in the country's mining and tourism sectors. As Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare, economists are not as optimistic as Zimbabweans continue to leave the country. In a New Year message broadcast to Zimbabweans at home and in the diaspora on national television and on social media, President Emerson Munanga was said all was shaping for a prosperous Zimbabwe. He said the mining sector had surpassed the target of $12 billion in 2023 while the country was now food sufficient. That's not all, said the 81-year-old politician. I am encouraged by the increased number of both local and international tourists visiting our country. Equally, investments in new tourism products and facilities, which bolstered the growth of the sector, are a welcome development. Gift Mugano and economics professor at Durban University of Technology. We are an agro-based economy. We sneeze when the agricultural sector catches the cold. We know that uh, this year there's drought. That will have a devastating impact on the economy. Columbus Mavungam, VOA News, Harare, Zimbabwe. 
Chad's military leader, General Mohammed Idris Deby Itno, Monday named opposition leader Sassez Masra the country's new prime minister. The French news agency AFP reports the announcement was made through a decree. Masra returned to Chad this past November. His spokesperson declined to comment on the grounds that he has not yet formally accepted the offer. His appointment follows the resignation of his predecessor on December 30. Kalaman Abefuta is president of the Chadian Association of Victims of Political Repression and Crime, which investigates abuses committed by former President Hissen Habri. He tells VOA's James Butty that Masra's appointment fulfills the aspirations of Chadian youth and it means that the transition to democratic rule is on track. Appointment of Mr. Masra is, uh, you know, a new approach for the second hand of the transition because the transition prone the reconciliation. And uh, as Masra accepted to come back home, I think that this is an opportunity for most of youth. You know, the youth think that the, the new era has come for the Chadian to dream a new dream. So do you think uh, Mr. Masra will accept the position? Yes, according to the what they signed uh, two weeks or one month ago, I think that it's linked that he would accept it to become the new prime minister after the first hand of the transition. I think that the president has the challenge to build a new conception of his politics. According to what is going now, I think that is a good approach. But, uh, Clement, on, under the new constitution, uh, Mohamed Bebi is eligible to run for president this year. If um, Masra accepts to be prime minister, uh, what would that mean for Masra himself or his ambition to run for president someday? What I'm, I'm seeing is, uh, you know, through what his uh, many speech is used to, to say that he is looking the coming election, you know, he has the, the personal ambition to go in the election of uh, presidents. So I think that there's no doubt that uh, he will deal with uh, election. So there is a possibility that if the military leader, Mohammed Debi, wants to run for president also, they can clash. Um, I don't wish that, you know... According to the new constitution, every Chadian who has 37 years, he have the overland to deal with uh, the election. So I think that uh, what I know is uh, there is no clash, but I don't wish it. I wish the best for our country, for the president, Mamad Kaka, and the new uh, prime minister, Dr. Masra. That's Kalaman Abefuta, president of the Chadian Association of Victims of Political Repression and Crime. He was speaking with VOA's James Batty. And that's all we have for you this Tuesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you missed this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan as we leave you 
with this song, Soketa by Mama Tutu. I am your host, Nabil Biagio in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Gwen Uten, and engineer, Cornelius Tenner, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. for a day, who would you swap with and why? I'll swap with our finance minister because I think he's doing a human job and I want to have a feel of what he goes through in a day. I'll change with my dad because I love him so much. He has been there for us. I mean, like, he has taken us in good schools. He has taken care of us because for us, our mom is not working. We depend on our dad. If I was to swap with someone, I feel I admire myself more than anyone in this life, and I feel I'm capable of doing what those people are doing, so I would not swap for any person. I would like to change position with the president, because I feel it would be nice to give instruction to everyone. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. 
Sudan in Focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in Focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 2023 has been another tragic year for Syrian civilians who were killed, injured, displaced, detained, and abducted in alarming numbers, and today face the danger of regional spillover. According to Geir Peterson, special envoy of the UN Secretary General for Syria, there is an urgent need for maximum restraint by all actors, Syrian and non-Syrian, and a sustained de-escalation in and on Syria towards a nationwide ceasefire. As 2023 comes to a close, the Syrian political process remains frustratingly blocked, and the Syrian people are suffering greatly, said Robert Wood, United States Alternative Representative to the United Nations. For more than 12 years, the Assad regime has waged a brutal war against the Syrian people. On top of that, Syrians are still reeling from the devastating impacts of February's earthquakes. Yet, rather than engage in a political process in the last few months, the Assad regime has stepped up its attacks on its own people in the northwest of Syria. We all know the responsibility for this war lies at the feet of the Assad regime, said Ambassador Wood. In late December, the General Assembly voted on a U.S. co-facilitated resolution on the human rights situation in Syria that reminded the world of the abuses the regime wants us to forget. The use of chemical weapons, extrajudicial killings, torture and other ill treatment, unjust detentions, enforced disappearances, and gender-based violence. We are alarmed by the reports that violence has reached its worst level since 2019. The hundreds of civilian deaths caused by the regime and Russian offensive in Idlib are deeply concerning. The destruction they have caused to infrastructure and the threats they pose to humanitarian operations put hundreds of thousands of people at risk during the cold winter months. We join the majority of UN member states in reiterating the call for the Syrian regime to immediately release all those arbitrarily held and to provide information about the tens of thousands who are missing, said Ambassador Wood. At the same time, we share concerns about regional spillover. It is in these moments that we must persevere and remain committed to achieving a Syrian-focused and Syrian-led solution to the conflict in line with Resolution 2254, the only viable roadmap for a lasting solution to the conflict. The Syrian people have been waiting far too long, said Ambassador Wood. They deserve the future for which they have fought so hard, including the respect for their human rights and fundamental freedoms. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 